0: This is Marty Schaefer from Kapow Guiding out of Revelstoke. You're listening to the Avalanche Hour podcast. My first or second day in the job were at the top of North American and I threw a bomb. And I remember thinking, I'm like, this is it. Like, this is what I'm going to do with my life. Like, I am going to be in the avalanche world.
1: You are tuned in to another episode of the Avalanche Hour podcast, your source for great conversation within the snow and avalanche world. I'm your host, Wes Gregg. The Avalanche Hour podcast is proudly presented by Reason Avalanche Control, with additional support from 10 Barrel Brewing and Interwest Insurance. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people who have a curious fascination with avalanches. Holy, I can't believe we're back already. The stoke is high for this upcoming season. Big shout out to Caleb for giving us an opportunity to grow this great community. I'm starting my season off with a bang. This guest came highly recommended and you will feel his energy through the speakers. I'm excited to share my conversation from last week with the man, the myth, the legend, Mr. Kapow,
0: Marty Schaefer. Well, hey Marty, how are you doing? Awesome, I'm so excited to finally be on this podcast. We've been talking about this for a bit, so let's
1: do this. Awesome. Yes, totally. And, you know, I'll start off by saying a lot of times when I would do the podcast with guests last season, in order to try to find other guests, I would ask them, hey, do you have anybody that you recommend? And three out of the six people I interviewed all said your name. So I got to work on the other three. Okay. That's what I'll, that's what I'll (laughs) 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 interpret. Totally. And, but I do think they did agree because I said, oh, yeah, Kyle and Kim and, and
0: James all said, all said, Marty. And they're like, Oh yeah, no, Marty, you got to have Marty on. And that's awesome. Well, thanks guys. <laughs> but it was actually yeah. funny because we originally, uh, we wanted to connect early winter last year. Right. I think, do I have this right? You were finishing your CAA ops level one and you that's were coming right. back to Revelstoke. And I think, was it December? Do I have that right? Or was it January? It was well, January I did it. And then I was planning
1: on coming to Revelstoke to do like a WFR training later in the year. Yeah. Yeah.
0: But the, uh, the topic was great, because you're just like, you know what, there's so much going on with COVID. And I would love to ask you some questions on what it's like <laughs> to run a business during COVID. And I remember sending that back. I'm like, I bet you want to talk about that. I don't. I just want to keep this <laughs> business alive. So let's, why do we connect in the fall? So here we are. Now we yeah. can laugh about it. I wasn't ready to laugh about it then. <laughs> so thanks for postponing this. and I, I really, truly am looking forward to this conversation. It's great to
1: finally touch base. I don't know how familiar all of our listeners will be mm-hmm. with your history. I mean, you're a bit of an anomaly when it comes to being a ski guide and being in the industry. So I don't know. Why don't you start off
0: by telling us who you are and what you currently do? Well, you know what? This is actually, <clears throat> this is actually a really cool time to be talking about... Um, The business that I created. So I started a guiding company called Kapow, which is short for Canadian Powder Guides. And what was really cool, actually, is uh, I just came back from Portland. Um, I connected with one of my sponsors, True Gear. And uh, on my phone, this like 10 years ago to this day thing popped up. And what had actually happened is I was on a road trip solo. I'd finished forest firefighting for the year and I was going on a solo trip to the States and I stopped off in Hood River and I just ran into these guys that started this clothing company, True. And after hanging out with them, um, I was a certified guide. I've been certified as an apprentice for 12 years. So it was my first year uh, being a full ski guide going into the season. And I wanted to create this new, unique company. And uh, I didn't know what to call it. I didn't know how to summarize my words of, of like, you know, how am I going to create a different guiding company? But it was so cool. So this this the thing that popped up is I'm building this website and I've got this little sketch on a, literally on a napkin. And it's this explosion that's kapow. So it's like, and on, you can see the website, Canadian Powder Guides. And you can see the copy that I have down is like terribly like grammatically incorrect. But it was just like, I was trying to get all my ideas out, trying to get all these photos out. And I just like, I'm like, I think this is missing in the industry, like combine avalanche education or just backcountry education with guides that, that want to shred. And so fast forward 10 years, it's like, it's funny how you can just brainstorm these things and they fully can come to fruition. Um, Kapow is based at a Revelstoke uh, guiding company. We, you know, all obviously we're Canadian powder guides, but we're mostly based at a Revelstoke and um what we've done now is we've t- I've taken over operations of my family business. So, going back more than 10 years, my parents started um, a backcountry lodge called Blanket Glacier Chalet. Well, actually, they bought the operation blanket but, uh, and c- continued on as, as an operation. So, the Blanket Chalet was actually uh, built from a CMH guide based out of Revelstoke in 1983 my parents are running telemark camps and and avalanche camps and they're renting all these different huts, uh, going multi-day traverses. And they had the opportunity a month before I was born to buy this lodge. So just Southwest out of Revelstoke, heli access up. And it's just this little a-frame that was put together pretty quick. So you can imagine my parents, they're like having a kid just started this lodge. But what I think is so cool is like, I was really born into it. And so, you know, even as a toddler, I was brought up to the lodge. My parents were guiding, teaching avalanche courses. And then as I got older and older, I was, you know, got more and more responsibility. But it's funny what you don't like looking back on it. It's like, it seems really awesome. It's like, I didn't know anything different. It was just like, by the time I was 10, by the time I was 12, but like after year after year, my dad gave me more and more responsibility with groups. And that's kind of how the classic question I get all the time is, you know, why did you get into, get, get into guiding? Um, I was just sort of tricked into it like i just really <laughs> enjoyed showing people into my backyard this the blanket which is like as you can imagine f- fly in there's pillows out the front door and there's all these like, cool tree runs um i got in snowboarding in a big way when i was uh, 10 so here i was this like this young grom with a splitboard i made with my dad showing everyone in their backyard and so it was, you know, pretty early on. I can't even remember, like there was never a, a, a turning point where I was like, I'm going to become a guide. It was just always there. Like I was kind of always guiding and the natural choice as a Canadian is to go through the ACMG program. Um, I'll just keep, I'll just keep rallying yeah. here. What I did is right out of high school, I got into ski patrol. So growing, the family was actually based out of Canmore. So it was like, that's where I went to school. We just, you know, went out to Revelstoke to fly into the blanket. But when I graduated high school, I, I saw the the opportunity to get in the industry with ski patrol. And I, I can't tell you how excited I was, like finally finishing high school and then getting a job in the industry. Like I got a job at Norquay. I still think back to that. I can't believe uh, JT got me a job at 18 years old um, patrolling. Like what a, what a responsibility for an 18 year old. But what a great way to get into it with first aid skills. And I was actually my first or second day in the job where the top of North American and I threw a bomb. And I remember thinking, I'm like, this is it. Like, this is what I'm going to do with my life. Like, I am going to be in the avalanche world. Like, especially finishing high school, seeing all my close friends going to university. It's like, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to throw bombs. I'm going to work on skis. It's like that really set, like that planted the uh, trajectory. There wasn't doing anything else. Um, I did spend, I spent two years at Norquay, two years in Lake Louise. I eventually got a job on ski patrol in Revelstoke, got my apprentice guides. And then when I got my full guides, whatever that been 2012, that's when I started Kapow slowly took over for the Blanket Chalet. Now Kapow is avalanche courses and guiding out of Revelstoke. Blanket Chalet at uh, the blanket, which is obviously guided by Kapow. And now it's like, awesome. I'm working with some of my best friends as guides. My sister's a chef. We got amazing chefs up the blanket, um, amazing caretakers. And I gotta say that it's like the dream. Now I work my butt off in the winter time, summer times I mountain bike, uh, but essentially just get ready for the winter. And my life is just based around having as much fun as I can on skis with the people I want to spend time with. <laughs> Period. <laughs> How's that for an intro? That was kind of fun. That is a summary.
1: Okay. Well, that's the podcast. Thanks yeah, for coming on. Yeah. Marty. <laughs>
0: Any follow-up <laughs> questions?
1: <laughs> oh man, like I mean, there's so much there. Mm-hmm. That's a great summary of how you came about into it. And that's the big part where I think your experience is going to different from a lot of people. Fact that uh, the next question on my list is where did you grow up and when did you start the sport of skiing? And, you know, we just heard that. And Mm -hmm. so when was the first time that your father and your mother put you on a pair of skis? How old were you? Where was that?
0: What was, do you remember what that experience was like? That's so good. Like it's a great classic question, but it's like, I don't remember. That was just sort of always (laughs) a thing. Like, um, You know, I, I would have been up with my mom and my dad guiding a group at the blanket and I, and I'm sure I would have been slapped on a pair of skis. There's a small little hill, you know, just behind the lodge. And I'm sure that's what it was, but, you know, I, I certainly can't, you know, I certainly can't remember. Um, It's like, I don't know. Do you remember learning how to walk? I, I, he just sort of did it. I just sort of remember learning how to ski, which is funny because I haven't really had any, Specific ski instruction. Like that was I, I did a little bit of racing before I was 10, like in Quickies at Norquay, but I haven't any had any official uh, instruction, which is why I, I actually struggle quite a bit to try to instruct guests on skiing. Like it's it's something I'm working on. I'm just cause, but someone that can relate to it, like if someone can relate learning how to ski, they'll be they're much better at instructing skiing. So Um, I usually just instruct the things I'm working on, like keep my hands forward, (laughs) shorter (laughs) (laughs) poles, keep your eyes up, things like that. Um, but I should actually really hit on a couple things here because growing up in Canmore, I got introduced to a great skiing community, um, guys I idolized, but ended up becoming really good friends. So that'd be like Chris Rubens, Eric Hurlison, uh, Kevin Hirtis, which is a guy, I totally idolized, been a huge mentor of mine. Um, so I watched those guys being pro skiers, um, I couldn't do, actually broke my back trying to keep up to them when I was 18. And that really solidified, like, I'm not going to go down this pro skiing world. I'm going to focus on, kind of saw the opportunity more as as guiding. So I don't have to, yeah, huck my carcass to try to get a paycheck. Um, But, you know, that kind of snowballed into where we are today. Like, that was a big motivation to start Kapow because I really saw, you know, clients that wanted to learn from, from pro skiers, they wanted to learn from a guy like Kevin Hirtis or Chris Rubens on like how they navigate the backcountry, how they size up terrain. And I, you know, I really used those names in the early years While well, I still do, who am I kidding to get people in the door? It, it added legitimacy, uh, from a young company. And just to, just to show that this is something different. We're not just a regular guiding company come and ski with Chris Rubens. Like that's rad. So, um, yeah, starting in Canmore, making those connections was, was really, really instrumental in, uh, you know, starting Kapow and starting the style of guiding that I believe in.
1: Let's talk about how old were you when you, when you started in the ski guide process and
0: what was it like and how were you treated? Well, you know, what's interesting with this too, is like, I want to be clear, like I, I did gain a lot of my experience with ski patrol. Um, I certainly learned a lot from my, my father and my mom, like they, they instilled, um, you know, really those human connections, the importance of that in the backcountry. But a lot of like the actual, I'm throwing my dad under the bus here, but the actual professionalism (laughs) is because it's like, you know, yeah, a lot of my professionalism came from, from ski patrol. But, uh, why that's important is I really thought after throwing that first bomb at Norquay, I really thought that my direction was going to be avalanche control. I was like skiing backcountry skiing is going to, that's going to remain my passion. And that's like, I'm going to work as an avalanche technician. And then on my days off, I'm going to ski pow because that's like, that truly is where my passion lies. And so at, what was it? 19, I tried to get in. I tried to fake my way into my CA ops one when I was 18, but they're all done in DC. So I had to be 19. I was like the, the legal age. And so I took my, yeah, took, I went to Tarming tours, which my parents actually start started in Kimberly with, uh, Margie Jameson and Art Toomey. So it's actually got to see a lot of history where I took my, uh, my ops one, but at 20, uh, sorry, at 19, I got my, uh, ops one. And then I was so motivated the following year. I actually got into my CA level two. So at 20 years old, which is like, it's pretty young, (laughs) went through the three, sorry, the three tier process there. It's like the, I managed to get into the first, like there's a dynamic, um, what was it like human, human, I don't know, something, something classroom, I can't remember. But that was like, so I'm 35 years old now. That was 15 years ago at 20 years old. You can imagine I've just got like a skate hat on. I'm running out the skate shoes and I'm and walking into this room. Like I didn't even know the legends that I was sitting next to. Um, and I remember going to Rogers Pass that year for like the, there's like a field component. And I was just like this, I had these fat skis. I think I even had trekkers at the time. I just, I certainly... St- stood out like a sore th- thumb as this young guy probably looked like the bartender showing up for it. Um, but you know what the, the, everyone was super supportive. Um, and it's, it's funny looking back now, like that's 15 years ago. Um, even just listening to what, what some of the candidates have to go through to get their professional membership, but I just did it. I was just like, I'm not going to university. So this is what I'm going to focus on. So as soon as I got my, my, uh, ops two, I started avalanche control at Lake Louise. I applied for my professional membership and I think I was a professional member at like 21 years old. And then that's what got me the job in Revelstoke. And that's what like the timing was so perfect. It was the second year that the ski hill was open in Revy. I knew at some point I wanted to move to Revelstoke. Chris Rubens was there. was a guy I really wanted to spend more time with. And so I visited him that first year the ski hill was open And then I was like, everything I could possibly do to get there, but what had happened is the ski hill needed to expand the backside. So I was able to get a job on on avalanche control at 20, 21 years old, 22, I think that's what it was. Um, So I helped develop the the program there. I worked under Troy Leahy, who I'm totally gonna touch on later. And a couple other guides that, or sorry, um, avalanche techs that are now eventually working for Kapow. There's a little bit of foreshadowing. (laughs) <laughs> so Troy Leahy put put the uh, avalanche pr- uh, program there. They needed more people to do avalanche control. I got that job there, and then basically what I do is when there was periods of high pressure or there wasn't any avalanche control, I really started focusing on the the hard skills for um, what what you'd need to do for the ACMG program. So I would remember practicing crevasse rescue off the bank while I was at the top shack, or I'd practice my transceiver literally every day, and then it was twenty yeah, I was 22 when I went through the apprentice ski. And then, uh, yeah, I was kind of, that was an awesome program, three different, uh, programs before you get into the uh, exam. But I can tell you like the, the apprentice, like exam, I've never been more nervous for something in my life because there was that pressure. It's like, your last name is Schaefer. Your father was a guide. I'm like, I can't screw this up. Like, <laughs> it's like all the examiners knew my parents. It's just like, I just wish that no one knew who I was, and I could just be my own own. But I like I I went in really prepared. This was, was like so important to me. It, I put everything into it, and I, I can tell you that like passing the apprentice ski was like it felt like that's when my you know like this is it. I'm going to become a guide. I kind of threw that avalanche control thing out. I'm like you know what I love people. I think I should guide, <laughs> and so that was uh yeah that was incredible. Like so now you got your apprentice guide. So then.
1: You still had to do your guides exam after that, correct? Totally. What did you get up to after you got past your apprentice guide? What was your path? Where did you end up? And we'll lead kind of right into that beginning of where you you started up with your own business.
0: Well, I love this because I'm going to still make it clear that you know even once I passed my apprentice, I was like, I am not going to ski tour guide because ski touring, I'm going to remain as that's my passion. And I want to just quickly hit on the blanket chalet here because at that time, I still didn't think that the blanket chalet had legitimate enough terrain to ever guide out of. Like I I knew I was always going to be a part of the blanket. I was going to take it over from my parents, but um, based on the type of guiding I did with guests up there, which is like telemark skiers, big open flat terrain, that's what they wanted. And we got lots of that right out the front door. So I was like, blanket will be fun. I'll rent it with my, you know, I'll rent it out to guests. I'll go up there with friends, but it's, that's never going to be a program. And so right after the apprentice, I was like, I am going to heli ski guide. Like that is the ultimate. And then I'll, and I'll work my butt off, heli skiing and days off, it's gonna be ski touring. So right off the bat, that first year I got a job with CMH my dad, like, it's funny thinking back on it. My, my dad told me to apply to CMH. Um, he's like, apply because maybe in five years, you'll get a job. So I put an awesome resume together. Same with Selker Tangiers. And I, in my back pocket, I was like, well, I'm probably still going to need to ski patrol. Cause these were the days it's not like now, like it was really hard to get a, a job as a guide, but I got back from the Tangiers got back to me. I got a, you know, got a couple months there. CMH got back to me and I got a full schedule there plus I had committed to ski patrol. So that first year, it was like, I think it was 140 days of guiding plus some like mix of, of, uh, ski hill things. There wasn't a single day that I wasn't paid as like a, a guide or, uh, it was ridiculous. It was like, I'd finish it, you know, finishing the CMH Bobby Burns. I would drive to Revelstoke started at a Tangier's do like a month straight and then do some days in the mix there with ski patrol. But I like, fairly had any time off all i wanted to do was guide heli skiing <laughs> it was this it was so cool i couldn't believe it like i did a bunch of snow safety stuff what actually happened is cmh started this new program it was this like extra guide program. So there was no space for new guides, but they they wanted to create some mentorship. So I managed to sneak in at the Bobby Burns and I kind of like filled in where I needed to, whether it was snow safety, whether it was like tail guiding or whether it was like a guide was sick or something like that I could fill in um, and take a group. And that was like, that was such a great mentorship program. I was like people I still idolize. Like Lindsay Anderson was, was so instrumental in, in mentorship. Bruce Howitt, I could just keep nailing it all naming them all off. But it was like such a great program that CMH created. Um, and I ended up staying at the Bobby Burns for four years. But it was like what had happened is I slowly year after year started um, ski guiding, sorry, ski tour guiding more and more. But those first two years to gain experience, and just maybe I should make this clear, how it works with ACMG is you have to build a pretty legit resume to be accepted into the program. So that's like a lot of, you know, personal touring, industry experience, um, and you know, like practicums, things like that. So I actually had a really good experience with ski patrol, like the professional side. I had a lot of, um, Kevin here and I, we trained quite hard on our time off to get accepted in, but <laughs> that was, uh, basically we just skied around the Rockies trying to put up what we thought were first descents. We put these like trips together that you're supposed to do these multi-day ski traverses, but they were basically just like, we would haul our bags into a base camp and then ski a bunch of rad lines and then haul our bags somewhere else. It wasn't really like doing the caribou's traverse or something like that. We we were really specific into skiing big lines, but I actually like, you know, right now I get a lot of practicums um, asking to get some work with Kapow and blanket, but looking back on it, I only had ever one practicum week. And that was with Rudy Banglinger at Selkirk Mountain Experience. And that still has probably been one of the most influential weeks of my life. And so for those that don't know, Rudy is uh, northeast of Revelstoke. He has some of the most badass terrain in the industry. It's like right out the front door. There's these big, big avalanche paths. But he's like a very different style than mine. Like I'm very like, I'm you look at the Kapow website, we're fun, we're we're goofy. Uh, we don't take ourselves too serious. And that's why I need to hang out with people like Rudy more because he's Swiss. He's like diligent, he's strict. And uh, all the stories you hear about Rudy are totally true. And I like I idolize him so much for that. Like, I wish I wish I could I had more time to, to actually work with him more. But uh, it was awesome. It was just Rudy and I and with a group of like a big group. And it was a touchy snowpack. Uh, it was a 20 was 2010 where we had a really bad surface war layer learned a ton. And that actually really instilled that week of like, you know what, maybe I want to ski tour guide a little bit more kind of getting off topic. So I got that experience, got in the apprentice ski, um, went through the three different categories. There's the, uh, there's a ropes component to it. There's a mechanized component to it. And then there's a ski touring component. Once you do those three, you are accepted into the exam or you're asked to take another year. So I was accepted in that first year. The exam is seven days, um, of, you know, you're leading other candidates, pretty intense, I did my, actually I did my exam in Whistler. I never skied a single day on the coast. So that was pretty eye-opening to me. Got that certification, did two years of heli-ski guiding, and then I applied to do the, the full ski. But what's clear here is I basically didn't have a whole lot of ski touring experience going into my full ski, which is not what I'd recommend at all. All I did was heli-skiing. Like it was like I did some film stuff. But the exam is seven days. Basically what the exam is, is you fly into somewhere remote and then you ski mountaineer for, for those seven days. But I was going into that, like hardly any ski touring experience, but, uh, I felt prepared, had an awesome time in my exam. And then it was like, yeah, the, I thought the apprentice was the start, but like the full ski was like, all right, it's on. And, uh, so past that, and that's is once I passed that full ski, that's when I really started the Kapow, um, really started the Kapow business. So I don't know what I'm at now, 23 or 24. Can't really remember. <laughs> yeah, wow! It's an amazing to hear your
1: story from somebody that was brought up around that sport to kind of hear it, and uh, from that side of things. So then now you move into Kapow, and you had all these experiences from working with Rudy, and um again, like the stories about Rudy. Some of our listeners may know them. Some of the American listeners may not. But I mean, yeah, his his reputation definitely is is one of very diligent, very militant. And then on the flip side of it, I follow you on Instagram from talking to other guides and other apprentice guides. You know, they're always like, oh, Marty Schaefer, he's such a blast. It's such a, a difference. Now, how do you manage that difference in that behavior when you're training other guides or helping apprentice guides? Like to give them the discipline, but then also not be discouraging or disparaging towards them, perhaps like in some of the old school um, mentality. I'm very curious <laughs> to know, you know, when you started Kapow, did you already have that in your mind that, you know what, I'm making, I'm going to make this fun and yeah. we're
0: going to make it. Yeah.
1: Okay. Well, so this go is what's ahead. perfect. No. This is like, that was like a perfect
0: <laughs> question because this is what I saw what was missing in the industry. So what I saw from Rudy was like, um, It was the traditional style of guiding where there's a guide that leads and then the clients follow. But what I felt like is like when I was ski touring with my buddies, when I was training, I really found, um, you know, what I enjoyed was having this like discussion as a group. And it was like having an atmosphere, you can bring up any question. And so the goal here was like, you know, let's get these professional guides that are really good communicators. And same with pro skiers and let's get a client base. That's really hungry for that. So it really is attracting a younger client base. And, I, and at that time, you know, if you were in your twenties or thirties, you never hired a guide. You just went out on your own and gained that experience. And I was like, that's the target market. And it's like, you're working professional at the time. I was really targeting Calgary. So working professional, you wanna come out with these pros, you wanna come out with these guides to learn a little bit. But I had, a, it wasn't like a gimme. It was like the concept of, of like my target market was someone that never hired a guide before. So it really was like, I had to like kind of create this idea. Cause what people were used to is like, you're gonna go to a lodge or you're gonna hire a guide and you're just gonna get, get the experience. But I was like, this demographic wants to learn. Learn the whole process. We're going to have a ton of fun. We're going to learn. And, and I think the best way to learn that is in an environment where you can bring up any question. And so that's where our like attitude comes in. But to be really clear, I think it takes a, it's a really specific guide that can do this because you have to be so dialed to make your job look good, like look look easy, essentially. But you are in the back end really dialed. And that's the coolest thing. Actually, the funny thing with the first couple camps is I thought what was going to happen is we were going to instruct these clients. They were going to come on a weekend and then they were going to be done. They're going to learn it all. And then they're going to, you know, the business model was at least tell your friends to come in and learn from us what I found pretty much right away is the more I communicated on what's going through in my head, what I did in that morning meeting before even meeting up in the parking lot, why we weren't able to get to that, that peak objective and ski these trees was that people were like, holy shit, there's a lot that goes into this. Like you need a whole depth of experience. Like there is no substitute for experience here. But there is like I can expediate that a little bit the more time I spend with a guide, and especially a guide that can can, can communicate along the way. And uh, I just I really want to hit on our first kapow camp ever because you know what we it was it was three of us. It was it was Chris Rubens, Kevin Hirtis and myself. And we we're like, let's put together a free ride camp in Roger in Rogers Pass. And so we we put up a website. We actually called it the Shreds Institute. <laughs> it was like put on by Kapow and, and Kevin was guiding in the coast. I mean on the Rockies, it's like the Shreds Institute. Come and learn from the pros. And we didn't really have any like um, there there was a, you could basically like there was no limit on how many people would sign up. We actually didn't think anyone was going to sh- sign up. It was like maybe three hundred bucks for the weekend. And we're like we're going to teach you everything we know from skiing pillows to navigation to route finding. It was like we're going to give you everything in, in three days. And I remember Kevin calling two days after we launched the website. He's like, we have like 27 people. And I'm like, stop it. Like put a limiter on it. We can't take 27 people. So we scrambled to get some other guides. We had Greg Hill, had a couple of these other boss guides in in Revelstoke, um, which were like all apprentices. I was the only full certified guide. So here I am, like my first year as a business, my first year supervising guides. And there's like guides that I idolize, like Greg Hill, I had to supervise. Joey Vosberg, I had to supervise. Um, But it was an awesome weekend. It was like the middle of December. Uh, Kyle Lamo actually came up. That was his first experience to Kapow. Now he's actually working as a guide 10 years later, which I think is so cool. But uh, after that weekend, what we saw is like people were just so hungry for more. Um, So we put on another camp and things just really snowballed. I really saw that we're like you know clients wanted to ski with with guides that would communicate and guides wanted to take clients out that could ski and actually you could take you could go and ski the lines that you've always dreamed about guiding and it was like that was like that's kapow and that yeah. has been the foundation of like yeah i just kind of put the pedal down um never grew as a huge company we kind of grew s- slowly the most important thing to me is is the community and getting the right people involved but it's, uh, it's not like we're, you know, we're, we're not saying we're just attracting young people, we're just attracting people young at heart. And that vibe is like, yes, we come across goofy, but, um, you know, at heart, we are like, the foundation is professionalism. But what it really does is it, it creates this atmosphere that people can ask any question. That's kind of the big, the big point there. Um, Kind of makes sense, you know, like let's we'll get into that yeah. launch courses at some point, but it's like I we're doing this for fun anyway. So let's go have some fun and learn the fundamentals along the way. Um, so it's like we're, we're teaching all the professional things. We're just just having a good time. It's funny actually like that's a lot to jam in.
1: So <laughs> we should hit on that about, actually, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's where I was going to go with this. It's like so now you're talking about you start off you're like we got 3 days. We're going to teach these people how to sleep pillows, how to navigate in the mountains and it took me 10 years to get to the point where I realized that I don't know a fucking thing <laughs> and that there's still a lot that I need to learn. And that's where the future of education and in the mountains, I think. And I think you're kind of on that trajectory. So let's touch on what you learned from that first attempt into kind of where you're at now.
0: Well, that's what's so key because I didn't hit on that earlier. Um what we thought was like, we're going to give everyone that info and then they're probably not going to come back because they've learned everything, um, but they'll tell their friends. But I mean, we all know, it's like funny looking at it now, it's like, no, the backcountry, country, the, the, like, the learning classroom is endless. So what happened is the more you'd learn, the more you realize you don't know. And so that's been kind of the path with Kapow is like, there's these entry-level camps But it's like, there's always something new. And so what we do now is now we've got a large guiding team. So it's like, go out with Troy Leahy one day, Andrew McNabb the next. So it's been really fun to grow the business as this, like we call it the client journey, obviously in business, but it's like, start with a, with a, you know, a free ride camp or a blast level one, take your blast two. And then we've actually started creating these things called the avalanche process one. We'll hit on that later. But every single camp that we do, even if you're coming up to the blanket, even if you're coming on a weekend camp or just private guiding is educational. And we just, we start like, it's not, there's a lot of these ones. We just like, we set a tone or we just start what, where your ability's at and take it from there. Every single day in the backcountry, the conditions are different and there's something to learn. And that's why I never chose to become a mountain bike guide because it's like mountain biking. It's pretty like, this is the trail, follow me. But in the backcountry country environment and snow is always changing. And what I think is so cool with this is like these guides that I get to work with is like when I'm working with my own guiding team, I'm learning something new every day. And that's where it's like, that's why this community is so cool, both from work and clients. It's just like, from the start, I wanted to start a guiding company that if I would go like, say it existed in Chamonix, I'd be like, doesn't matter my experience. I'm going to hire them. And so that's, what's cool. And that's, what's actually happened is we get clients with all abilities. You want to ski 10,000 foot days and learn along the way, we can take you there. If you're brand new to touring, sweet. That's our jam too. And so that has really like, it's, you know, the goofy side is not what I want to be recognized as. It's just this approachability and for all abilities is is really the tone that I'm I'm striving for. That's the brand. Yeah, and I I think it's working. Like, you know, there's a goofy side of it, but like you said, a big part
1: of being a guide is the professionalism side. And, And there's no doubt that from, hearing about you through other people and then just watching, you know, even whether it's on social media, which is a huge marketing thing for you guys is yeah, you're goofing around, you're joking around, but at the end of the day, there is still a feeling of confidence in the work that's being done by you and the team that you have comprised. Now you're, you're at this point now, you're still growing. What do you see, in the future for Kapow, where's the next
0: milestone for you? I love this. It's actually something we're working on right before we start this podcast. So we've always called this like style that we're instructing all called the cap- cap- process, And so, it, you know, it, it comes from Silas Patterson and I, he's a guide from um, in, in Nelson. Um, we started this like taking from what we do professionally where we use the infox and we had to fill out all these forms and these, have these conversations before we even meet at the trailhead with clients. We thought it'd be so cool to start instructing with, um, and some continuity with all our guides on like, give the clients exactly what, you know, we had to that conversation and have them come up with it on their own. So what we did at the blanket, we actually put this big chalkboard out. We have a call the process, Um, where we just like, we gather information from local areas, you know, current avalanche conditions, current snowpack, the way of communicating all this. Um, and then ultimately what it is in summary, it's like the main focus isn't putting the avalanche danger rating at the top. Let's talk about the conditions and how we got there so that when we're in the field and we're stimulating the conversation to make a decision where to go, we have some depth to it. Because the whole idea, and I remember this even as a Grom uh, getting into backcountry is like, you would just be bullshitting with your buddies, you'd get to the top of a line, you'd be looking at your, through your ski tips. And at that point, you'd be like, all right, so do any of you guys have a good feeling about this? It's like birds are chirping, the sun's out. It's like, I can tell you're going to have a pretty good feeling about it because your, your human desire is going to want to ski that. But what we're trying to do is like give that build up, learn how to stimulate the conversation so that when you get to that point, you can have a good t- uh, conversation. It's funny, I think most people can relate to, you know, learning the backcountry, learning avalanche conditions. And you'd look at an avalanche professional and you would think that you would just dig a pit. And then that professional could talk some like, avalanche jargon and then know if that line is going to ski or not. Is it on or not? I remember being frustrated too, be like, just tell me if it's good to go. I don't need to know all the information. I just want to ski it. So, I mean, those are the tools. And I think that is what the future is, is like learning how to stimulate the conversation. Ultimately, it's like, you know, anyone doesn't matter what you do, you, you have risk in your life. And so, you know, with there's so much uncertainty with backcountry, we're just trying to give the tools to people to, um, you know, to get to that conclusion, knowing that it's gray, but you can actually like ground truth information from the bulletin um, to, to stimulate the conversation. So what we've decided to do rambling here is we've got a really cool book, we've actually called it the process. And it's, you know, we've just we've taken things from what we've learned everywhere from the ARI courses to the AST courses. And uh, it really is just that way to build up in the day. And we're trying to simplify it, like really have fun with it. And but really try to simplify it and then, uh, you know, grow where it needs to grow. So, you know, the process is a big, you know, our style of branding that decision making platform.
1: Totally. Over the last year, I've I've been fortunate enough to go out and and shadow some AST courses. And it's always interesting when you come in it from the other side and you're like, well, I'm beyond where they are. And you're watching them learn and watching the sheer confusion over some of the material and exactly (laughs) that same thing where they're like, I just want a go or no go answer here. And trying to instill that that's never really a thing and that it's a whole process in order to come to that decision And sometimes you get it wrong. And sometimes you just get lucky.
0: We get lucky a lot in this, in the avalanche world. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, I see what you're getting at. Exactly.
1: So, and that's a big thing that a lot of times we're seeing. So, you know, you guys are doing your own thing there with Kapow. Now, are you incorporating that into the
0: other governing bodies within Mm -hmm. the industry? Or is this just something that you guys are doing? No, it's it's such a good question. Like, I, I really want to hit on this to be clear, because you know, it's almost simple business. Um, I'm trying to create something different and unique, but it's just, it is kind of happening organically. So in Canada, how it works is the recreational courses are called AST level one and AST level two. And uh, I I spent a lot of time on the skin track thinking and and like there's the funny things that go through my head. So if you follow Instagram and you see the plan words and stuff, it's like, that's the product of being on the skin track a lot. But one day I was just like, I, got I just need to come up with an acronym that makes AST more fun. And because what we do is we do smaller groups. And because you're going with an ACMG guide, we go into bigger terrain than you would traditionally go, you know, big groups or, you know, not, not an ACMG certified guide. And it just hit me. I'm like, actually, you know what it was? I got my logo, um, the Kapow logo from a napkin. It was a Batman napkin. On the one side, it said Kapow. And then the other side, I was literally showing someone this napkin and I flipped the other side. I was like, oh, it says blast. How funny would it be if we call our avalanche courses backcountry learning with avalanche skills training? Come have a blast with the <laughs> 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 So you get some more letters, but with that, you know, it comes with a higher price tag. So that's really what it is. I'm just trying to, we're, we are using the AST curriculum in our level one and level two we're just taking it a bit further. And, you know, I'm using, you know, the AST curriculum as the base. A lot of people can understand what you get. Like a AST one is a weekend course. Uh, AST two is a four day course, but our ours are more expensive because it's the smaller groups. You know, a lot of our AST twos, we do a heli drop one day where we land far. And then as a group, you got to navigate back. And so it's like, yeah, that comes at a higher price tag. So I'm using BLAST as a way to show that we have a fun time, but ultimately like you're getting more than just a traditional AST2. But what I want to hit on is what's next. And this is what's been really exciting for the past, let's call it seven years, is I think a lot of people, once you hit your AST2 level, as a recreationalist, you know, where are you supposed to go? Uh, And I think a lot of times people might take an AST2 again with a different instructor. That's kind of what your options are. But a lot of recreationalists are looking to the CAA operations level one. And so I want to make it clear the difference here because Avalanche Canada, you know, they oversee the AST one and two as a curriculum. But the we we're saying it earlier, the CAA ops one and ops two, that's the professional side. So when I was going through as a ski patroller, I needed to take my ops one. And in my ops one, you learn how to, you know, do a proper snow pit, how to gather that information, grain identification but it's not focused on decision-making it. The whole idea with it is like, learn how to learn the recording standards, learn how to take this information to a forecaster, graph a profile, all those sorts of things. You're not coming up with building a a forecast. You're not learning the decision-making platform in the field. And that's what we saw is like a lot of recreationalists were taking that, and they're coming out of it with, well, they're going into it with expectations of being better backcountry decision makers, but they're coming out with it, knowing how to record or graph a snow pit. And we're like, this is the missing piece. Recreationalist, even the 10, you know, the 10 years in work with Kapow, the recreationalist is coming at this with a lot of experience. They know the acronyms. They know all these things. They follow the mountain information network, but let's develop a program where you specifically learn how to be a leader in backcountry decision-making so the ast1 is kind of the fundamentals of learning the ast2 is like learning how to move through the terrain and then we've introduced this avalanche process level one where it's like learn to be a leader so stimulate the conversation really ground truth the information and develop your own forecast and it is blown up like we always get booked out because you know it's we don't actually have we haven't offered very many courses it used to start where we actually, we booked out a lodge and then we'd fly into a lodge and we'd all navigate like, you know, myself and whatever guide was helping me out. We'd navigate through terrain we have never been before. So it was awesome learning. Like candidates, myself, this is the first time moving through complex terrain. And it was like, we were all learning. We were using the process to, to like justify our decisions. But what's, what I'm really excited about this year is I have taken away the backcountry lodge component. I've taken away all accommodation food and it's just a simple four day not simple. It's a four day course. But with that, I've been able to cut the price down because now you can kind of like, you can, it goes back to the target demographic. We're not looking for like the head hedge fund, like New York banker that can afford a lot. It's like, this is, it's not dirt bag. It's still like, you know, it's a thousand bucks. Um, but it's like, it really is that next level. So we're, we're advertising it. Like not everyone should take your ops one, come and learn the decision-making process. And obviously we called it level one, because at some point we're going to call we're going to have a level two, but, uh, we just added, what did I add? I added like eight or nine different avi pros to the schedule. And it's just like, I haven't even advertised it that much. Cause it's just been, like we're getting the right people involved, but this is me. This is me advertising, I guess. <laughs> Cause it's like, it's led by like the Troy Leahy's myself, Andrew McNabb, a bunch of our key guides. So it's like certified guides have been you know doing this for a long time huge depth of experience and we're using this really cool book. So when you leave, you've got this really cool framework. So that you look, you know, you have a really good time, you look pro and you learn um, a really good uh, decision-making platform. But I'm so jazzed about it. It's like we have so much fun with these these courses. I think that's a great next step. That's exactly
1: right. That's exactly what happens. You take your AST2 and then you're like, well, where else can I go from here? And then when you start to look at doing your CAA operations level one, you have to be committed to the fact that this is a professional training course and really your job after that is you're allowed to record stuff and should be able to confidently record data. It's funny that it's exactly that. People end up taking their AST2 again or they'll take a companion rescue which is also a great 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 options, right? You know, because it's important to have those skills, but when it comes to decision making and navigating an avalanche terrain, I found out after the first time that I went on a guided trip, I was like, oh my, okay, I want to go on more of these guided trips and annoy the heck out of these guides with a thousand questions. Because I see it a lot from the people that I ski with where they could definitely benefit from something like this. And so, it's, it's great to see that you guys are kind of leading the forefront on this and, and bringing it with excitement, which I think is a big bonus for the community to share the knowledge and share the excitement. So let's lean it now over towards that professional side of things. What do you see coming on the professional training side? Do you, do you foresee any changes in that process or any other further steps in order to better prepare aspiring guides or aspiring
0: avalanche professionals. Well, you know what's really cool. You know, it's almost like related to a question around like what's next in you know avalanche education or instruction and all those sorts of things. And you know, there's a lot of gimmies out there. Like there's a lot of you know, you can practice with your transceiver in the field. Let's actually let's I'm gonna start with the tech side of it. So you practice with your transceiver in the field, and it's great. You can do you know a multi burial with seven transceivers in a thirty by thirty square. But what we're starting to do with training, both recreationally and as, as us professionals is like, we're training because the reality in an avalanche is it's not like the little, you know, you've got the like companion rescue card that you can get. Like Arcterics, I think has one. And and like, I think Avalanche Canada even has one. You hand out the card and there's this nice little avalanche debris. It's like this little lobe. And it's like, there's two people. Clearly, you learn this. I think usually you like draw it out in AST1. It's like, there's a person buried here and there's a person buried here. You just zigzag the slope and you find the first one, you move on to the next one. You know what? like. And a true avalanche rescue is so chaotic. It's like, it's not like that at all. The reality is if you're surprised by an avalanche, you're going to be just like, it's just such a surprise. And so learning to, to do these rescues in, in un, like basically what we're doing, what I'm trying to get at is these avalanche rescues that we plan would be in like complex terrain with it like, you know, very treed, rocky and in real avalanche debris. So that the reality with a search is, you know, like it's getting on the slope. It's like, is there hang fire on the side? And is there like a bunch of undulating terrain? Because it's not as simple as like in your ski boots or your slippers going through this little park. And so the reality with all of this is the, you know, the the search, the transceiver and the probe can actually go by quite quick. The, the whole meat of the rescue is in that shoveling. And, you know, I wouldn't say this is new like this year, but this is something that's been happening last few years is like shovel technique. Cause that is, that's everything. Like if you're dinking around on the shovel, it's like, that's the difference between your buddy getting out alive or not like avalanche debris, someone buried a meter and a half down. That's a big deal. And so actually it's so simple, but actually practicing how to shovel, like have the muscle memory on doing it is for real. And I never like early on in my career respond, responding to avalanches and with guests it became very evident that it's not as simple as just shoveling and telling people how to shovel. It's like, you got to practice this, like get in that proper conveyor belt, practice what it's like chopping up hard snow, because when you really have to do it, like you want to just be so intuitive. You want to have that muscle memory and you want to go after it. And to me, that is a friggin' gimme like practice how to shovel because that really is the difference between life and death and uh the reality too with, with practicing with transceivers a lot of times people are sort of in the surface you see a handout or or something like that or a clue or there's a lot of people around you come and practice a shovel it's like practice the transceiver there's no question but can't emphasize this enough shoveling it's everything <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah I try to practice as much as I can, and when I get a chance to go on the st one courses and shadow, sometimes you'll get students that, because it's an exercise, they're lollygagging a little mm-hmm. bit, right? And and yeah, trying I get to, to them, shovel. <laughs> yeah, and it's like, no, you got it. This is this is the most important part, and then following that is going to be the first aid portion of it the thought of it you know when i heard you talking about you have all these scenarios where you'll have multiple burials but the one thing i learned when i was doing my wfr last year is how realistic they make it and then Mm -hmm. um having been new into the professional industry you know hearing of lodges doing like full-on mock-ups yeah and and i think that's the type of thing that should be presented after an ast2 and like that kind of realistic, chaotic situation where it's, it's the avalanche rescue, the first aid, and the handoff, Mm -hmm. so that people start to kind of get a a feeling that it's got to be muscle memory, you can't Mm be pulling out your card and being like, Oh, okay, well, what do I do next? So when you're looking at hiring a guide, what do you look for, or even apprentice guides? What are your expectations on their training path, and their attitudes, and their experience? What is it that you look for at Kapow, and at the
0: blanket? Well, I really, I love that question uh, because, like, right from the start, I wanted to find a guy that would be stoked to go out with sort of any ability, and I'll give, like, you know, Andrew Andrew McNab for an example. Last year, he's He's uh, you know, he's he's still kind of under the radar. He goes out and skis these like badass lines. And, you know, he's not like a super, he's had some support, he's had some sponsors, but it's like what he's doing is with the Greg Hills, with the Christina Lustenbergers, like doing these rad things. And so last year he went and put a first descent down in the, the gold range to sell for the blanket. And then the next day he flies in and has an intro to skiing kind of like, you know, last year we had to fill a lot of trips at the blanket, but a couple came that were fairly new to touring. So, and there he is like in this open terrain, he was teaching people how to like powder ski for the first time. And he's just loving it. He's just like, I just really appreciate, you know, seeing people in the mountains and, and that, that feeling of progression. So it's like it's the approachable attitude with the depth of experience and professionalism. I want a guide that makes it look easy and is super approachable, but you know, down low and you know the foundation is just totally badass. And uh I just like, it, it's so cool to be able to, you know, essentially give these, these guides, the clients that they've always seeked. And I've always pitched that to, to guides as well as like, let Kapow be the vehicle of getting the guiding you've always wanted. And so it's just been, yeah, that's kind of the big thing, but I can't, I just, I can't say it enough how excited I am to be working with this team and as we're growing, now we're growing into new, you know, a new guiding round. We have a bunch of apprentices this year. And they're all just sort of fitting in with that. And it's just like, yeah, it's, it stokes me out that these guides even want to work with me. But it's like this such a cool opportunity to have these clients that are stoked, guides that are stoked, and uh, us just having, yeah, <laughs> perfect combination. I'm so fired up about it.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, and that's fine. That's, that's an important part of instilling stoke amongst your clients and amongst your guides. So now with all the guides that you have, what do you do in order to assist your guides and encourage them when it comes to their own personal mental health with regards to the stresses that can be involved with being away from home, being involved in an incident, or any of the other stresses, or getting prepared for your exams, your Mm -hmm. ACMG exams? How do you... Help
0: your guides and how did you work through it yourself? Oh, I love this question. And I might not be taking it exactly the way that you're asking it, but I, I want to take it this way because you know, another reason why I believe a lot of guides like working with kapow is my goal is to eliminate that pressure of delivering that like perfect guided day that you see in the brochure, where it's like, I'm gonna get first tracks going down a couloir. So I think Kapow definitely attracts the the shredder. But what I think is really cool is like we're eliminating the pressure to like have to get down like, you know, this is my one day without with Kapow. I want to wrap into a couloir and ski a first descent. <laughs> I'm like, don't get me wrong. We'll get there if the conditions persist. But the way that this format works, this process that we go through is that like if we communicate all the conditions, then everyone can give respect to the fact that like these are the conditions like it's super touchy today. And the fact that we actually made it out, we got skiing and we we turned away from the objective. There's so much fulfillment with everyone. Like the client had a great time and that happens time and time again, where it's like, we go through the process in the morning, let's say at the blanket and we're going up to the peak objective. And then we stop as a group. And then that was the objective in the morning. It seemed like that's where we're going. But then the guides start stimulating the, the process and, uh, you know, like we go through it all and then all the, you know, the group's just like, you know what? you know, I think it's probably better if we turn around and ski this low angle things. And the guide would come in and be like, okay, well, we can definitely do that. But this is the reason why I want to continue on. So we kind of go through it all. And it all makes sense to the the guests. It's like, yeah, you know what? I I, I like that. I feel like I'm a part of the decision. And so there's tons of fulfillment to go to that peak or it's the other way around where it's like, let's not go up there for these reasons. And everyone totally buys in. And so with these educational camps, it really eliminates that pressure to the guide to like perform finding the fresh line. Clients are all, you know, totally on the same page. Um but with that as well, like with the blanket, you know, I kind of touched on this earlier where I was saying that I never thought that the terrain at the blanket was good enough to guide. But here we have these total badass guides coming up to the blanket. And the reality is, is we've actually had a reputation at the blanket that we've got some of the flattest terrain out there. But what that also is, is we've got some of the safest skiing. So it's like when the whole world's falling down, we're skiing these like big open glades with tons of pillows in them. Like sure, we're not skiing avalanche paths, but you know what? It's kind of nice not to always be in avalanche terrain. Every single day we can find fun skiing to have, but then when it is on, we certainly have peaks to get to, and we can, you know, usually what the format is of the blanket, everyone leaves at this, you know, there's 14 people that we leave off the skin track. We don't have to space out. We're not dropping into something gnarly. We've got time to build up. So maybe you go to the top of caster that takes two hours, top of caster. We drop in this huge avalanche path, but it's like, we're able to go up together. We're able to gather information before dropping in. And so you know these guides that have a lot of experience a guy like i'll go back to andrew McNabb, is he's super happy to put in first descents but he might not actually want to guide someone down that first descent on his days like while well, he's working it kind of it's nice to have that ability where you don't have to hit that objective so i think we, i think you can understand what i'm getting at here I'm, I'm just trying to eliminate that pressure and you get that pressure heli skiing get that pressure on you know certain guiding styles and so I think that helps a ton that, you know, my my expectation is you're providing really good communication to the guests and you're having a really good time, but the pressure isn't like, you know, go to Rogers Pass and find that first descent uh, because it's like that's hard to do. So And then with that too, you know, it's like working with, with friends like that, it's a really good supportive community. Um, you know, I, I hate to say it on, on air here, but if it's like the conditions are crappy or the guides not feeling it, you know, we're, we're certainly out for the team. Other guides can step in, or we've even communicated to to guests before too. It's like, you know what? It's just the world's fallen down out there. We'd be happy to ski with you on the ski hill, but it's just, it's just not, (laughs) it's, it's actually, it's only happened twice, but we, it's just, it's just not on, you know, we'd happy to you know, a lot of times too, we'll guide someone up the the valley bottom in Rogers pass, dig a pit, kind of like watch some avalanches come, come down and then we ski back. But we've always given people the option, like, let's, we'll go out and do that, but it's not on. So we're not gonna, you can't, you just can't create better skiing if it doesn't exist. Like it's, (laughs) so yeah, the mental health is is obviously quite key. And um, yeah, that's a really good question. Yeah, great. Just maintains a positive
1: work environment for the guides. And so then now when it comes to the amount of time that you have spent out in the backcountry, do you care to recall or share a story that shaped your experience in the backcountry? whether it was a close call or a near miss or an involvement in an incident? And how did that come about?
0: And how did you manage it? Oh, hell yeah. This is, this is what's so good. And it kind of like goes back to your question of like kind of the future of, of education, because it's like, you, you don't get caught. Like the best thing to learn about avalanches is like, if you get caught in one, you really learn that that sucks. Like, you don't want to have anything to do with that. But that's not a reality. I don't suggest that that should not be part of the learning process. But I think what is so cool it's what's so cool with this podcast is like this is this is the this is the future is that like learn from other people's experience and if you have an incident, talk about it and I've seen such a huge change in the last fifteen years where it's like it's acceptable to you know the community does accept like you know, you can, you can post on the mountain information network. It's like, Hey, look at you guys. Like I made a mistake today. This is where I was skiing. This is what happened. And it's like, that is so, so powerful. That's so important. So like, heck yeah. I would love to communicate, uh, you know, an incident that happened to me because I think that is the future. Like don't get caught in avalanche learn from me, (laughs) but it really, it really was, you know, it's kind of what started this process. It started the guiding career. And I can tell you that when I'm guiding, I don't wanna get caught in an avalanche. (laughs) I got my ass kicked when I was 18. And so I don't want that at all. And so that's exactly what it was. I was skiing in uh, Lake Louise on my days off. I was with, I was actually with Chris Rubens and I was with two of my other best friends, uh, Eric Herlipson's brother, Steve, and I'm a buddy I grew up with Harley. And it was a classic day where it's like we really didn't have a whole lot of a plan we just had our avalanche gear and we were just like doing laps in the backcountry we kind of do like a, we did west bowl which is big and open spun around up top we did a dog leg spun around came back up and it was this like kind of cloudy in and out day and we decided like if the light is on vortex we should ski it because it's like we're feeling so good about it we skied all these other backcountry lines we're developing a really good feeling about skiing something it's like how funny is the confirmation bias there? Like you skied a big open bowl with a bunch of tracks, you skied a cool bar, but now it's time to ski a big, unsupported, cross-loaded, weak and shallow snowpack. It's like, yeah, it's totally, you know, we're feeling good about it. <laughs> so we were on top of this peak and I remember looking through my ski tips and I remember this so well. I remember looking down and what we said was like, as soon as it pops, like if we have good visibility, we're going to ski it because the conversation we had is like the only safety on this, the only safe zone, if this thing pops, is skiing out the bottom. Like a, I don't know what it was, like a 600-meter slope, uh, maybe even bigger, actually. Uh, huge open face. There was like a cliff band in the middle. And it was like this huge open hanging face, middle of March. And it was like, yeah, if this thing pops, you're going to ski out the bottom. It was like a poor run out. There's was like, it's like the Rockies. There's like a boulder field at the bottom. But I remember I had my skis on, there was a weather window, it went It went clear. And I remember thinking like, I don't know enough to know if I have a good feeling about this or not. So sure enough, I was like, no one else was, was ready. They were kind of watching on the side. And uh, I think Chris was supposed to drop first, but I was ready. And I was like, well, where do you go? You're ready. I'm like, okay, I'll buy the beers. So I drop in. I felt like I was like, felt like I was full on like TGR film, like slashing the spine. And then I get to this choke and I just like, you're just doing everything wrong. Get to this choke, smear this like super rad turn. And I'm in the choke. And I felt like I got hit from behind, like just like from a bus. And I blew forward, lost my skis. And I remember having my pole straps. Like I'm never going to ski with pole straps because it's like I was getting May tagged. And uh, it was like a year earlier. I think I took my, uh, no, it was a few years earlier, I took my recreational avalanche course. It was called a rack course, but AST one. And I remember my instructor saying like, keep your feet in front of you and do this like back crawl so that you can get your feet in front and it can protect you from any debris as you're going down. I was like, (laughs) I was just eating shit down the mountain. I'm like, I can't get my feet in front of me. Maytag, like, like just ragdolling down this mountain. It was like a size three avalanche that like took off down the valley. I fought like heck, but it was so hard because I had these damn pole straps on, but I don't know how I popped out skiers left. Maybe it's because I fought so hard, but I was man- managed to pop up, look up. And I'm looking at the top of this, a like, huge face. Like I'm, these like little, my friends are at the top, but like these little ants and uh, I was fine. I lost my skis. But what was so interesting is like, these guys are some of the best skiers there are. And, and, you know, they couldn't get to me for like 15, 20 minutes. It's like, cause the avalanche went to ground. And anything that didn't avalanche was like massive hang fire. So it was like, I was like, holy shit. Like that sucked. I'm glad to be alive. I didn't have a good feeling about it. And then these are like, we're all really good skiers. I lost my skis. We barely made it out before dark. And this is just the slack country off the ski hill after lunch. And so, so many things like that was so instrumental. I'm so glad that that happened in so many ways because it's like, that sucked. And it actually instilled this, this style of guiding that I think an instruction that I think is so vital and so important. Um, that that sort of set the trajectory, like I need more education. And uh, it really is why I enjoy instructing the process. Like don't hang with your homies and then look through your ski tips to make the decision then. And then when shit hits the fan, are you guys truly dialed as a friend group to respond? We didn't have a way to communicate help, you know, all these sorts of things. So Jeez, I hope you all learn from that. Don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> that's
1: the reality of it is, you know, a lot of times, you know, some people end up either getting scared because they hear these stories, which isn't necessarily what we, we want, but you still want them to be somewhat scared where you're like, no, nah, you guys should think about this before, before you step into something. And yeah, exactly. And, you know, that's, that's an, amazing, an amazing story. What's one tool that you wouldn't go into the backcountry without, and not any of your regular safety tools or things that you need in your pack for for survival? It's just like a just a silly tool or something that you carry with you to
0: that you wouldn't leave the lodge or wouldn't leave home without? Candy. No, just kidding. <laughs> no, I do love candy. And you know what? They're actually maybe I'll, maybe I'll take that seriously because you know it is. I always have uh, like a shot block or something in the bottom of my backpack. Cause when, uh, you know, we've all been there where days end up being way longer than we thought. So having that extra bit of food to help with decision-making and positivity, um, that is super key. Um, but you know, on the serious side, I mean, these are probably quite common, but ski straps are just like, I know everyone hears people preach it, but do not like four is the minimum ski straps. And then also just a way to get people off the snow, whether it's just like an emergency blanket, but, uh, toboggan and stuff is, uh, the things are just never even just, even on the ski hill, I always have kind of like a little, little emergency blanket kind of thing. And candy. I love candy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's my new
1: my new crux too, is candy. Lots of candy. Now, is there anything
0: that I should have asked that I didn't? Well, you know what I want to do to wrap up? This would be kind of fun. Just kind of asking that last question. I was thinking at. Is just the way the avalanche world has gone. Like I think about when I got caught in a slide when I was eighteen. Um, the avalanche bulletin at that time was very specific on the danger rating, and so we decided to ski that slope because the you know the danger rating was just considerable, and we're like, wow, I mean, how do we get caught in that? That was just considerable. But what it is and, you know, what we focus a lot on the process and you'll see, like, I think the Avalanche Canada Bulletin is just so rad. There's so much good information in there because it's the conditions. And, you know, Joe Lammers taught me this analogy, which I think is is just perfect. It's like, you know, if you're a boxer going into a ring and your coach is getting you prepped to get, you know, to, to. To get up against your opponent. If you just get thrown into the ring and your and your and your coach just says that your, your opponent has considerable hazard, you get thrown in there and you got to figure out the characteristics the hard way. But what you really want is like you can start with the like, all right, this guy's got considerable hazard, but these are the characteristics of him. He's got an upper cut or a jab or something like that. So that when you go out there, you're you're prepared. And that's what. I think is so cool where the the industry's going is like, we're talking more about the conditions. So, you know, what's your storm slab? How is it reacting? Where is it? What's your persistent weak layer? Where is it? And so that, when you see avalanche avalanches happen from other people through, you know, min reports and all that stuff, it's like, you're kind of ground truthing your sheet. And this is why it's so like, it's easy as a guide and you're out every single day, but if you're a recreationalist with an office job and you're trying to make decisions before, or trying to understand what the conditions are like before you go to Rogers Pass, it's like, you got to see all this stuff. So follow the avalanche bulletin every day, see what's going on with the, the min report. So that when it's time to go into the backcountry, you don't just dig a pit and then start from there. You should be like knowing what you're going for already because the conditions are already there. And that's what makes it so rad. It, it helps the recreationalist so much. And, you know, th- that's how you stimulate the conversation. It's not like we just skied this because it was considerable. It's like we skied this because of these conditions. And this is the great way to wrap it up because I was thinking a little bit about, uh, you know, I didn't want to talk to you during the COVID environment because I'm like, I'm like, I think I'm sticking my neck out here a little bit. And I don't want to talk about it because it's like, I do want to keep meeting my my guests. And I I do want to have people come up the blanket because, you know, it's funny thinking back on it is like, I was using the avalanche process idea to my day-to-day risk tolerance. I was using it for COVID. And what I was the most frustrated with is like, why can't these doctors, instead of just saying that the hazard's high, give us the characteristics and then let me evaluate my risk tolerance. Let me communicate the conditions that I feel are out there to the clients. I could be like, come to the blanket. Yeah, your your risk is higher, but what we can do to, you know, eliminate that exposure is like, okay, two weeks out, all of you guys, I want you to like self-isolate to the best of your ability. And then when you come to the blanket, you're going to wear masks. When we're in the field, it's fine. There's a characteristics. That's not where your high exposure is. But when we're in, in, in the, the lodge, we're going to have less people. We're going to have all these sorts of things. So what I'm getting at is like, it's funny this developing this process idea because anytime I I, I hit, this is people always ask, like, what are the biggest things you learn in the back country? It's like, this is it. This is this cool way that I, I you know, when I hit, Periods of uncertainty or periods of risk. I kind of go back to this, like, okay, let's go through these characteristics so I can understand that exposure, so I can make those next steps. And so that's why, you know, I talked to Aaron Cooperman a bunch last year. And we had the similar, you know, conversations. These are the characteristics. I feel like we're good to keep operating. Like, what are the consequences? And so, yeah, that was the that was the biggest thing. And I think it's really cool that 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 this has been taught to me, or you know, eventually kind of came as a process of decision making with everything in my life. Um, and it's been fun to apply that to everything in my life and, and start tweaking a little bit the, the process form. But, um, yeah, I really like, I really can't say it enough how excited I am as an industry and how much I want to encourage everyone listening to this podcast and everyone out there to like report things, keep the conversation alive, because, that is going to be the future. It's, it's not digging a pit. We're not going to get better at snow science. You know, it really is managing our, our human desires. And so there's a lot to learn with that. That's a whole big old can of worms. And so snow science is going to be an exact, you're going to learn terrain with your guide, but ultimately it's um, yeah. Managing your desires and communication. So that's it. I think yeah. that's a good
1: summary. That's an amazing way to kind of summarize the whole Of the conversation and your perspective on the industry it's just great i really want to thank you for taking some time to chat with us today it's been an awesome conversation i think our listeners are
0: really going to enjoy it i'm so stoked to be on and i'm really fired up what you guys are doing like this is a huge part of the the future of backcountry and avalanche education it's just those conversations and so it's so easy. like podcasts are just such a great platform for that learning. So I- I'm excited to even go back and listen to a few more of these. And I'm so fired up for some of the guests that you have in the future. So I'm honored to be on this. Thank you so much for having me. Ah,
1: oh, thanks Marty. Woo. What a great conversation with Marty Schaefer. If you want to know more about what Kapow has to offer, Head on over to their website, kapow.ca or follow them on Instagram for some great content at Kapow Guiding. A big shout out to our sponsors who make all of this possible. Weizen Avalanche Control, Ten Barrel Brewing, and Interwest Insurance. The music in this episode is provided by Age Shimonte, And a big thanks to Mike T for the artwork. Thanks, T. This episode is produced by myself, Wes Gregg, at FBR Recording. Stay tuned for more and follow us on your favorite podcast platforms. But in the meantime, be safe and have fun. Cheers.